0: Evening. I'm probably going to say morning like four times, so just forgive me in advance, please. Um, can everybody hear me in the in the first base out there? Everybody good? Can you raise your hand? Okay, perfect, excellent. Um, I am sorry to be filling in for Jeff tonight. I know he was very much looking forward to preaching this sermon, um, and I'm very much looking forward to having him come back and preach from First Peter to us. And now our substitute text this evening is Acts 14, as Daniel read. And as I was thinking through the passage that I wanted to preach to tonight, Acts 14 was really an easy choice. It's it's, it's, it's an interesting story. On the one hand, um, it's Paul's first missionary journey. It's his first recorded sermon specifically to the Gentiles. And it's a really significant instance of persecution in his life. But there are other reasons why I picked the text. Namely, that there are three things here in this passage that... I think the Holy Spirit wants every local church to understand three important and useful things for any local church to comprehend. And I'll give them to you now. First, we see God's plan for missions in action. Acts 14 helps us to see what missions truly is and how local churches fit into the context of God's overarching plan of salvation for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Second, we see what it f- means to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We are supposed to be a people who are evangelizing those in our lives, and here we have a witness as to what a faithful proclamation of the gospel looks like, how to proclaim the whole truth of God. And Third, Acts 14 paints a very clear picture of the reality and inevitability of persecution. Over my lifetime, and I'm sure many of yours, It's become clear that in America, the things of God are being rejected with increasing and increasing rapidity. I think understanding persecution as a church, expecting it is something that we really should be prepared for, and it's something that we shouldn't be surprised at. So my plan tonight's fairly simple. I'm gonna provide some context to the story, then we're gonna jump into it. Um, I won't read through it traditionally, we'll just kind of, huh. I don't need that. Um, actually, no, I do. Um, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go through it. I'll provide some background uh, context. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. And as we do, I will make comments as we go. And then at the end of it, as we go through the text, we'll kind of focus back on those three areas of emphasis, um, zero in on them, and uh, make some basic points of application. If you're taking notes, my outline is pretty simple. There are three headers that I'm going to use. They all begin with Paul's faithfulness. First one is Paul's faithfulness in missions. Second is Paul's faithfulness in preaching. And the third is Paul's faithfulness in suffering. So with that, let us us open in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us this evening. Thank you for this temperate weather. Thank you for your love for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that as we go through this text, our hearts and minds would be opened. I pray that your son would be glorified, and I pray that your purposes in our lives as a local church in the context of missions would be furthered. Jesus name, amen. So as I said, a little bit of background and context. Um, As I said, this is Paul's first missionary journey, but it's not his first stop on that journey. Um, he was commissioned by the Holy Spirit in Acts 13.2 out of a church in Antioch in Syria. Now he travels to a few places and eventually he arrives at a different Antioch, a second Antioch, this in a place called Pisidia, which is in the Galatian region, uh, modern-day Turkey, in the middle of modern-day Turkey. There Paul is invited with Barnabas to preach on a, uh, on a synagogue day. Um, he preaches the gospel faithfully and it's actually well-received. He's invited to come back the next day uh, and preach again, or the next Saturday and preach again. Uh, Unfortunately though for him, the whole city shows up at that point in time. It makes the Jews incredibly jealous, and as he preaches the gospel, they begin to actively contradict him. So Paul basically tells them, fine, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles then, because the gospel is for them too. This angers the Jews in the city enough where they chase him out of town. So Paul goes from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium, and he gets there, When he gets there, the same thing happens. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches. There, it is not only well-received, but a great many Greeks and Jews believe. And so Paul stays in the city for a little while. Unfortunately, after a while, the unbelieving Jews in the city are able to stir up opposition. And a plot arises to stone Paul. Paul fortunately gets wind of it. And he's able to flee. And he leaves Iconium and heads over to Lystra, where our story takes place. So as we get to verse 8, Paul has literally been fleeing from city to city so far on this missionary journey. So I'm going to I'm going to start us off here in going to start us off here in verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And then verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lycaonian and said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So pausing there for a second, Paul's preaching, he's giving a sermon, he sees someone who is reacting well, and he heals the man, which is awesome. But we see in verse 11 that the miracle is taken in the opposite way that it should have been. Um, And, And somewhat ironically, too, Paul is giving a speech when this miracle occurs. And we know from Paul's preaching to the Gentiles in general and what he's going to say in verses 15 to 17, that he's usually pretty on point in calling them out for their idolatry. So the fact that they see this miracle and attribute it to something else means that they have completely divorced it from Paul's preaching. They have completely ignored the context of what he's saying. And in fact, they make up an entirely unrelated reason for the miracle. They assume that Paul and Barnabas are gods, specifically Zeus and Hermes. Verse 12 and 13. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, if you've heard anyone preach on this sermon before, looked at study notes in a, in a, in a Bible, you'll, you've probably heard that there is a local legend that is directly on point. There's an old local myth in the area that the gods, specifically Zeus and Hermes, came to the city, they dressed themselves as beggars, and they went door to door. They were looking for hospitality, they were looking for kindness, and at every single door, they were turned away, they were rejected except for one, a married couple, uh, Bacchus and Philemon. They let them in, they showed them hospitality, they gave them a meal. um, And so the gods, angered by the incident, decided to flood the entire town. (laughs) I need to hold the sermon down. Um, (laughs) See what you mean, Daniel. Uh, (laughs) They flood the whole town, except for the house of Bacchus and Philemon, which they turn into a temple of Zeus, which I'm sure the locals would say is the same temple of Zeus we read about in verse 13. So when this miracle occurs, the Lycaonians seem to think this is the second coming of their gods and unlike their ancestors, they were resolved not to screw it up. So they go and they get the priest of Zeus and the people begin to get ready to worship the missionaries. So in verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all of the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And in verse 18, Luke writes, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. I'm going to skip over the content of the sermon we're going to talk about it a little later in our sermon. But basically in the story, Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on and they freak out, which is understandable because getting worshiped as a God is the opposite intent of every missionary ever, Hopefully. So they freak out, they rip their clothes, and they rush out, and Paul gives this sermon. They plead with the people not to worship them. But Luke tells us they succeed, but he's also careful to point out again that they barely succeed. They just barely stop people from offering sacrifice, which makes verse 19 so absolutely astonishing. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So Paul performs a miracle. The people think this is the second coming of their gods. They're willing to offer sacrifice. Paul barely stops them and then a couple of outsiders or a group of outsiders from their town come over and not only convince the townsfolk that these aren't gods, but that the townsfolk should out and out try to kill them. This is perhaps the greatest flip-flop in the history of history. I mean, this is absolutely remarkable, this change. And it's a clear picture, honestly, of the depth of sin in the human heart. Not only do these Lycaonians completely misconstrue the, the, the miracle, not only do they completely divorce it from the context of what Paul's Paul saying, not only do they offer or want to offer blasphemous sacrifice to these two humans, but they go from worship to murder quickly. Now for Paul, this is a brutal turn of events. So what he does next in verse 20 and following is also absolutely amazing. Verse 20, when he, when I'm sorry, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, To continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city, every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul gets stoned and he literally gets up and goes back into the city. Then the next day, he goes on to the next city and preaches there. And then he retraces his steps. He goes back to the cities where the people who literally have tried to murder him repeatedly came from. This is what faith in a sovereign God looks like in a missionary. This isn't Paul having a death wish. This isn't Paul being reckless with his life. This is a man who knows and trusts in God who rules over every detail. Paul knows that if God wanted him to be a martyr, there would have been a few more stones. And so because he believes in a God who reigns, he gets up and he continues on his missionary journey. And that's how the story ends, with Paul getting up, going back to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And while he's there, he helps organize the churches that he just founded, and then he sort of retraces his steps back through his missionary journey until he gets to Antioch in Syria. So that's our text. That's what happened. Those are the basic facts. And like I said... For the remainder of our time, I want to focus on three things that we see in this story, three things that I think are useful and important for any local church to understand and follow. Now, I've said it a couple times now, and this is, by the, this is the first one, Paul's, Paul's faithfulness in missions. Paul's faithfulness in missions. And I've said it a couple times now, Paul is a man on a mission. Going to Lystra is not something that he woke up one day and decided to do something that the Holy Spirit specifically commissioned him and Barnabas to do in Acts 13.2. It's part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to go and make disciples of all the nations. It's part of the Lord's directive in Acts 1.8 for the spread of the church, where the Lord said that the church would spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. And it's part of the Lord's uh, future salvific goal that we see in Revelation 7.9, where, quote, a multitude, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues are worshiping the Lord forever. Paul's doing is very much God's work. And in fact, what Paul's doing here forms the pattern, the biblical pattern for missions in the New Testament. And one thing I want to highlight is it all centers around the local church, all centers around the local church. It was a local church in Syrian Antioch who commissioned the apostles and sent them out. When Paul went city by city preaching, he wasn't just evangelizing in general. He was looking specifically to form new local churches. And then Paul spends the rest of his missionary journey focusing on those local churches. That's why he gets back up and goes to Lystra even after nearly dying. And it's why he retraces his steps on his missionary journey rather than going straight home. Doing what he did is not the shortest path. It would be much shorter just to go back to Syria, but he deliberately retraced his steps. And and that's because Paul wanted to make sure that the churches he founded were equipped, well-ordered, and healthy. And he does this because he knew that as these churches grew, as as the people in the churches matured, as they had opportunity, that the local churches that he planted, both collectively from their version of the pulpit, as well as individually, would finish the evangelistic work that he started in that city and in that region. And that's actually Paul's pattern in Acts. Uh, Occasionally he stays longer in a certain place, but for the most part, Paul preaches in a location enough to establish a church or where persecution forces him out. He doesn't stay a whole lot of time. He, He generally leaves and let that local church finish the work of evangelism in that city and in that region. And then eventually that cycle repeats as local churches raise up and financially support new missionaries to repeat the cycle. New Testament missionary work in a nutshell is the establishment of faithful local churches that A, um, preach Christ to people in their own lives, and B, raise up and support missionaries to support the gospel going to places where Christ is currently not preached. And in that overall context, Paul is a man on a mission here. He understands the the emphasis and the importance on thriving, healthy, and faithful local churches in God's plan for salvation. And that's why later he would check in and write to and pray for these churches. The churches in this story are the churches to which Paul wrote the letter to Galatians. He saw God's plan and the role of local churches in this global missionary context. He understood it, and he actually ordered his life and ministry around it. He was passionate about it. Now, I'm belaboring this point tonight because for us, for Veritas Church in 2020 in California, we are absolutely part of that overall missionary story. We're we're part of that overall framework for what God is doing in this world. God intends that our life together as a local body be not just foundational to our own spiritual lives, but also participatory in the Great Commission. God planted Veritas where and when he did as part of that overall story. And like any faithful congregation, our first and foremost, we're supposed to be being equipped through the faithful preaching and teaching of our pastor elders. We're supposed to be sharing our lives together in community, building each other up through the gospel, holding each other accountable when we fall into sin or error, encouraging one another in the faith, being transparent with one another in our failings and struggles, attending gatherings such as Bible studies, community groups, prayer meetings, to the extent we can, and regularly showing hospitality to one another. That should be the number one priority in our lives because as we do that, as we do that, we will collectively and individually grow in Christlikeness. And a lot of wonderful things happen, but one of those things is that we inevitably find ourselves equipped and desirous to proclaim Christ to our families, our neighbors, friends, coworkers, Whoever God puts in front of us. And in doing so, the gospel will saturate Roseville, Rockland, Citrus Heights, Carmichael, Granite Bay, anywhere we are for the glory of Christ. Moreover, as we mature, as we're equipped, we'll also find ourselves looking for opportunities to financially support, praise for, and perhaps or pray for, and perhaps even raise up missionaries from amongst us to go to places where Christ is currently not proclaimed to repeat the cycle for our joy and his glory. So this is, this is God's missionary purpose for the local church. This is what we're called to do together. And so one of my first hopes this evening, I, I have three points and three hopes. My first hope this evening is that we all begin to grasp if we haven't already or fully grasp this, this bigger missional picture that we're supposed to be a part of. May the Lord let us really see what it means to be a local church, a local body, a local physical expression of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously tonight, if this isn't how you view church, if, if for you church is something you, you come and do on a Sunday and that's it, or if there's anything in our individual lives or in our family priorities or in our own hearts that does not align with this picture, then obviously I, I hope and pray that God grants us changed minds tonight. Which brings us to our second point, Paul's faithfulness in preaching. Now, as a missionary, Paul wasn't just faithful to go to the missionary field. He was also faithful in what he proclaimed. Let me read uh, verses 15 to 17 one more time. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Now Paul's got two purposes in this short speech that he gives. First and foremost, he's introducing this polytheistic people to the one true and living God the God who is solely responsible for making everything and providing us all that we enjoy in this life. But second, in doing so, Paul's also pointing out that their current religion is false. When he says vain things, he's referring to Zeus, to Hermes, their entire religion. The word vain is mateos, and it means void of result. It means that these things, these gods that they worship, they can do nothing, and they are nothing. He's literally telling them that the religious system isn't just wrong, It's worthless. And when he says that God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, he's still talking about their religion. He means that the peoples of the earth have believed what they wanted and worshiped how they wanted. But in doing so in chasing after worthless things, mankind has abandoned the one true God, the one who creates and sustains everything. Now what I always found interesting about this speech though is while he mentions good news in verse 15, there's not really any good news in this speech, is there? I mean, normally we think about the gospel, we think about forgiveness, we think about the cross, we think about the love of God. He doesn't mention any of those things. In fact, the speech is kind of bad news. Paraphrasing him, he says, you are worshiping a load of nonsense and have failed to serve the living and true God. It's Really not good news. He does the same thing, by the way, in Acts 17, when he preaches to that city, he gives a very remarkably similar speech. You're worshiping a load of nonsense, failed to serve the living and true God. And like Acts 14, there's no mention of the cross, no mention of forgiveness, no mention of God's love. Peter does the same thing. It's not just Paul. Peter does the same thing in Acts 2. Read that sermon sometime. I'm not going to go into it tonight. But it it is a faithful paraphrase to say that Peter stands up in that sermon and says, Jesus Christ was sent by God to you as the Messiah, and you killed him. You murdered the Messiah. And then he sits down. He stops talking. Now the people are pierced to the heart and they ask him, brothers, what shall we do? And that's when Peter preaches the good news to them. But he stops talking at the end of the bad news. Now what's my point? My point is the the good news is only the good news because of the bad news. And Paul and the other examples that we have of faithful preaching in the New Testament are all very clear about presenting the bad news as he is here. And if we're gonna be faithful evangelists in our own context, Again, we talked about the missionary context of the local church just a second ago. If we're going to be faithful evangelists, we need to be clear about the bad news too. If you have ever preached the gospel to anyone, you know that there's an easy part and there's a hard part. The easy part is talking about God's love. The easy part is talking about forgiveness. The easy part is talking about the joy that God wants to give us. Because no one's offended at those things. No one's offended when you tell someone that God loves them, that there's a way to be free from the consequences of their sins. No one's offended by those things. They are, however, offended when you tell them they're living in rebellion, that God will sit in judgment of that rebellion, and they need to repent. That usually offends people. But like Paul, we need to faithfully present the bad news that makes the good news good. And it's, again, it's so easy to be unfaithful here. It's so easy to shrink back and only preach the easy part of the gospel. And unfortunately, this sort of compromised evangelism is very, very epidemic in America. But it isn't how Paul preached. It's not how Peter preached. It's not how Jesus preached. It's not how John the Baptist preached. And it's not how we should be presenting the gospel either. If part of our responsibility as a local church is to be proclaiming Christ to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, both collectively and individually, then we have to make sure that we're not shrinking back from presenting the whole counsel of God. Now again, there's a right way and a wrong way of doing this. I'm not suggesting that you, next time you're in line at Subway, you tap somebody on the shoulder and say, you're going to hell and you deserve it. That's not That's not what I'm saying here. Don't do that, please. But the reality is, is that while there's wisdom in what to say and and how to say it and when to say it, the Holy Spirit, through Luke's recording of this message, is giving us an example of what faithful evangelism looks like. And that's what I want to point out tonight. So I end the second point with my second hope, namely that all of us, as we are encouraged to preach Christ to those in our lives, would preach the whole gospel, the whole cross, even the hard part. my water of course our third point tonight we also have to recognize that when we do that we are probably not going to like the reaction so that's our third point tonight our third related and final area of focus Paul's faithfulness and suffering Paul's faithfulness and suffering Paul actually references this incident in Acts 14 in 2 Timothy 3:10 through 12. And notice what he says there. Talking to Timothy, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that I endured, that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. And then verse 12: indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or or how he put it in verse 22 in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. As we live faithfully, and that includes personal evangelism, persecution will come. Now our text says that Paul was stoned. Enough that people thought he was dead. I don't want to belabor this point, but... This wasn't a few thro- a stones thrown by some angry people, this was attempted murder. Now, stoning is brutal, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about it before, but it's, it's literally rock after rock being thrown by angry people who, generally towards the face, who are hoping that the rock that they're throwing is the one that ends the person's life. This is deliberate. And in this case, enough stones hit Paul that the people plausibly think that he's dead. Not they threw enough stones where they felt that he learned his lesson. Not enough where they they threw some stones and they left him for dead. But they threw enough stones where they thought they had killed him and they thought they were dragging a corpse out of the city. And I don't know exactly where they would have dragged a body, but I don't think it's right outside the city gate at the entrance. They would have probably brought him to a place of trash or refuse or where they brought other dead bodies to rot. This would have been an ugly, terrible place, and Paul would have been a bloody and bruised mess. And I, I don't want us to miss how intentional this all was. Paul is, I'm sorry, Luke is very clear in verse 19 to let us know that the crowds that were whipped into this frenzy were whipped so by Jews who came from Antioch and Iconium, the city Antioch and Iconium. To give you a sense of distance, Uh, Iconium was probably about 20 miles away from Lystra and Pisidian Antioch was about hundred miles away. So if you were if you were walking in those days with a group, 20 miles is probably two days comfortable travel. If you're on a horse or a camel, probably a single day. So multiply that by by five for the people who are coming from Antioch. I don't know about you but there are not too many things in my life that I care enough about to go five to ten days worth of travel over. I I complain when I go on an airplane ride for more than two hours. cannot imagine traveling 10 days for something. But these folks are so full of anger and hate towards Paul that that's how far they would travel, going city by city, attempting to kill him. When Paul visited a city, he incited such, not, not frustration, not anger, but a murderous rage that people would literally follow him around. Now, Jesus explains in John 15 why folks reacted the way they did, why they hated Paul so much. In verse 18 to 21, we read, "'If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. "'If you were of the world, the world would love its own. "'But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, "'because of this, the world hates you. "'Remember the word that I said to you. "'A slave is not greater than his master.' If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then the kicker. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. In other words, this, this murderous rage that's that's following Paul from city to city is really nothing more than a continuation of the world's persecution of Jesus. And Jesus, I'm gonna quote him one more time, tells us in John 3 why it is that the world hates him so much. In verse 19 to 20, we read, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And this is the heart of the issue. Jesus demands a response from the world. You cannot interact with him without having to declare which side you're on. Over and over and over again, we see this in the gospel accounts. You either come to Jesus in faith and repentance, or you reject him. There's no middle ground. Some do try to come to him with, with false faith, but he never lets them stay comfortable. He never winks at their unbelief. He's never you know, puffed up at the size of the crowds that follow him. He always draws a line in the sand and forces people to react to him. And when you preach, when we preach, we're doing the exact same thing. We are also drawing a line in the sand. And beyond evangelism, just in living a godly life and living our life focused on him when he is our delight, when he is our treasure, when we're living our life faithfully in the context of the local church, as I've mentioned previously, we are also drawing a line. Or using the language of John 3, when we preach Christ and to a lesser extent as when we live a, a godly life, we are shining a light. An absent God changing a person's heart, they will hate the light because they love their sin and want to keep doing what they're doing. They, and they'll hate, that, that hate will follow to us as the one who is shining the light and exposing the sin. This is why, for each of us, there is such an omnipresent pressure to conform to the image of the world, to allow ourselves to retreat to a comfortable Sunday-only faith, or to immerse ourselves in suburban life and the American dream of a life revolving around work and hobbies and kids and vacation. The world would love it if we were just like everybody else. Because it blunts the offense of Christ and allows the world to continue comfortably in its rejection of God. The world would love us to be unfaithful in speech and unfaithful in action. And it certainly doesn't want faithful, healthy, healthy, and vibrant local churches. And this is why all who live, sorry, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, as I conclude this point, I just want to make a couple disclaimers. Uh, first and foremost, persecution takes many forms. It does not have to be physical violence. It can be being ostracized. It can be work relationships or work consequences. It can be... Um, Uh, familial rejection it can be all sorts of things it doesn't have to be a stone to the face to be persecution but it's also good for us to remember that there is such a thing where we give offense not because of our association with Jesus but because we're just offensive Um, and we've seen signs of that Westboro Baptist Church and the signs picketing funerals Jesus was never a jerk in how he preached he was bold he was clear He was uncompromising, but he preached the gospel in love. And for us, we have to remember that we preach a gospel that will offend, but we don't preach it offensively. We shouldn't preach it offensively. But as we do preach, persecution will come. And just as Paul warned the churches in Galatia in verse 22 of this, so too it's fitting that we're warned as well tonight. Which brings me to my third and final hope, namely, that we won't be surprised or angered unfaithful ourselves when we experience the world's persecution of Jesus personally. So in conclusion I want to end by quickly tying together these three related topics, missions, evangelism, and persecution together. And I do that in five points really quick, promise. First, we need to recognize that Veritas exists in the context of God's global missionary purposes. Second, we need to recognize that being faithful to that context requires us to see our life together as a local church as just that, a life together in deep, prioritized fellowship around the gospel. Number three, it also requires us to see our personal lives as the means through which the gospel is intended to penetrate the region where we live. And four, it also requires us to see and prayerfully participate in The work of planting churches in other places where Christ is not faithfully proclaimed. And finally, fifth, it means that we need to recognize in advance that being faithful will have consequences. But forewarned and forearmed, we can continue in faithfulness knowing that we are being used by a sovereign God whose undefeatable mission we're participating in. Brothers and sisters, it is a privilege to get to serve as a local church together in this global missionary context as God uses us for the salvation of his elect across the world. And my hope tonight is that we all see this becomes part of of how we think about our our body life here and becomes part of our prayers, becomes part of our giving to the extent that's not already. And to the extent that it is, that we excel still more at it. In my final seconds tonight, if you are here tonight and none of this is true for you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would like to draw that same line in the sand for you. Tonight, God calls you to determine to decide whether you'll continue in your love of sin, to love your idols, whatever they are, to love the things in your life for which the wrath of God is coming. Tonight, please, Lay down your vain idols, whatever they are. Recognize that the Lord is calling you to repent of your sins and to turn to him and be saved. Embrace the free offer of forgiveness and grace that is in Jesus Christ tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity tonight to again be in your word, to see an example of faithful missionary work, to see an example of of how local churches participate in it and how we can participate in it, to see an example of faithful evangelism. Thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of Paul and his suffering, that he didn't shirk away or give up, that he continued on, survived, and wrote the Bible that we hold so dear, or so much of it at least. Lord, thank you for these examples. I pray that we would take them seriously. I pray that they would take root in our hearts and that we become a church passionate about each other, passionate about the proclamation of the gospel in our lives, and passionate about the salvation of your elect across the world. In Jesus' name, amen.